You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You can find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Peter Cousins. He is a renowned author. His books are all over the History Book Club, Book of the Month Club. He's won numerous awards. And I can tell you, I have read three of his books, and we're going to talk about that a little bit today, that centered on the Civil War, and they're absolutely amazing. He retired after a 30-year career as a foreign officer. He worked for the U.S. Department of State, and prior to joining the Foreign Service, he served his country as a captain in the U.S. Army. It's nice to have a fellow soldier on the podcast. Peter, thank you. Thank you. The one thing I want to say and make sure that people understand is, is the scope of your research. You, you have written basically 19th century American history books, but not just books. They are classics. His books, This Terrible Sound, The Battle of Chickamauga, and The Shipwreck of Their Hopes, The Battles for Chattanooga, were placed by the Civil War magazine as two of the 100 greatest works ever written about the American Civil War. That is a massive achievement, and you should be congratulated. Thank you. Thank you very much. So... When we talk to historians, one of the things that I like to ask first is, how'd you catch the bug, the history bug? I caught it early. I, mean, I caught it in childhood. Um, it, I, I literally caught it in grade school. Um, I remember that. I think the book that first influenced me was um, uh, the Golden Book of the Civil War uh, that I got as a, I don't know, when I was in primary school and and uh, it's stayed with me ever since. Um, my, my undergraduate major wasn't history. Uh, it's always been, of course, my career in the Foreign Service, uh, really nothing to do with history, but it's always been uh, my first love. And now that I'm retired from the Foreign Service, it's, I can honestly say that I'm pursuing my avocation. Is there a particular event that you remember in history, like what was the first big event that you can recall as a, as a, as a kid going, okay, I remember when that happened. Uh, 
Uh, you're trying now. You're trying to date me. Uh, let me see. Really, uh, really. You know, I as a as a very young child, uh, five years old. I I distinctly remember Kennedy's assassination. I remember having come home from school and sitting in front of the TV in the living room and and hearing the first news and and yelling to my mom that uh, the president's been shot and and her replying. That's not funny. That's not funny, Peter. Don't make jokes like that. I still remember that distinctly. Did did it? Let me ask it a different way. Was it something along with the other events of the '60s? It's such a historic decade, not only in the United States but also throughout the world. <clears throat> did it just sort of keep reinforcing? Like, I love reading about the space program and the Vietnam War and the civil rights era and what was going on both in the Middle East and in Europe. It just one thing after another reinforced your love? I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I can't really say that because again, I was young during the sixties, uh, too young to, for it to be all that meaningful. I mean, just, you know, recollections of growing up in Chicago suburbs of, of wondering why we couldn't go downtown to Chicago during the 1968 convention in Grand Park and, and, but not really fully understanding what was happening. Um, so I, you know, maybe on a subconscious level, it had a, influence on me but but uh nothing i can pinpoint <laughs> i've had a couple of guests on the podcast who were there that night were there for the convention were there in grant park and there were terrific stories about how they were going down and they're going to fight for their cause and then they come out of the hotel and they turn the corner and they see the cops doing their thing they're like no nah. <laughs> yeah not, not, chi- not chicago cops under mayor mayor bailey's regime you don't want to mess with them <laughs> <laughs> so is there a uh, how did you focus? I'm not going to say settle. That's the wrong term, but focus become so enamored with 19th century American history as sort of your uh, focal point. Uh, I mean, it began with an interest in the civil war and that, that started uh, from childhood. And then I, and I remember I, I um, in high school, I used to ditch classes to go down to the, Chicago, either to a Cubs game, kind of like Ferris Bueller, or to the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop, which is still still the premier uh, bookshop in the country, I think, for for the Civil War and and, uh, and Americana, and uh, so that that interest with and it was kindled by the Civil War, by books I got by playing with the you know, remember the old H O uh, Airfix toy soldiers and trying to recreate battles and, and and such and then i i you know after from that the civil war after writing i umpteen books in the civil war my interest moved west uh i guess i followed uh horace greeley's maximum and mm-hmm. got it uh, became interested in the american indian wars in the west and and um from that uh uh american indian um and uh history as it relates to the United States, you know, encroachment on their lands in general. Uh, thus, I went from the Indian Wars of the West to Tecumseh and the Prophet. And uh, now I'm finishing up a book on, um, on the Creek War, Andrew Jackson and the, the, uh, the conquest of the American South. So, um, but it all started with an interest in the Civil War, which developed in childhood. Did you buy the plastic soldiers that you found for sale on the back of the comic books? 
I remember buying all the the red and blue plastic soldiers in the back of comic books so I could recreate, you know, the Battle of Cowpens or Mammoth Courthouse. No, I got I got the little Airfix HO scale which you buy, you know, forty eight in a to a box for fifty cents, and that would be my <laughs> my my treat uh, every every Saturday. My mother would buy me a box of those, and so I I amassed a pretty good size army. <laughs> did did you find any particular historian? So we'll stay with the Civil War for a second. More compelling to me in that era. My favorite is which doesn't make me unique by any form is Bruce Catton. I just found his book so incredibly readable, but was there someone who you said, man, I really enjoy this person's writing and maybe look at it a different way. Uh, you know, I would agree Bruce Catton. I mean, he elevated uh, civil war history to the level of literature. Uh, no question about it. And, uh, and then later, um, like when I was in high school, I became enamored of Shelby foot, uh, uh, again, because of, of the literary quality of his work, uh, you can you can haggle over how, you know, some of them, some bias in his work and, and and whatnot. But there's no question that it 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 uh, it is it is fine literature and great reading. Um, so I you know I think uh, I'm not by any means unique in the in the authors that that uh, that influence me. As a historian, how much of what you do? Because I want to lead right into your latest book, uh, which is about Tecumseh and his brother, the Prophet. How much of what you do do you consider either intentional or unintentional myth busting? Um, I in in my most recent books again, Tecumseh and the Prophet, and then his predecessor, The Earth Is Weeping. Uh, there was quite a bit of uh, myth busting involved and a good part of it was intentional. I mean, not, not that I necessarily uh, was aware of all the myths or potential myths that I, I hope to uh, bust in the, uh, when I went into the works, but there certainly were numerous myths or uh, misconceptions that I encountered in the course of, the, of these works that uh, I then did my best to bust, not through any bias or any, but by simply telling the story as it really happened. Your latest book is called Tecumseh and the Prophet, the Shawnee Brothers Who Defied a Nation. Most of us are somewhat, if we have even a rudimentary knowledge of history, are somewhat familiar with Tecumseh, his, his brother, the prophet, less so. And I remember when I was in grad school and was working as a research assistant, uh, I used to quiz my uh, supervisor who had a PhD in early American history about how do you, how do you both say and spell the prophet's real name? You, can you get it right on the first time? <laughs> oh yeah. Tenskwatawa. Uh, Occasionally I've, I've heard it pronounced Tenskwatawa, but it's Tenskwatawa. And I got that spelling. Uh, it was phonetically from uh, a, a unimpingible white source, and that was someone <laughs> who, who lived with Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa for a number of years. And he actually spelled it authentically and said, "Here's where the the accent goes." So Tenskwatawa. How much of the fact that we're doing this podcast? Obviously, I'm in Indiana. You're from Illinois. Um, the Midwest is the such the focal point 
of of these Indian interactions with Americans and before the Americans, I guess you could say colonists. How did the the Midwest, besides just the fact that that that's where they collided, become this this focal point? In all the books that I read about this era in the Revolutionary period, it seems to me that the colonist <clears throat> hunger for land was just insatiable. Yeah, in fact, it's um, interesting you point that out because I we're, we're going to change the subtitle of the book for the paperback edition because I want to uh, I want to uh, although I like the 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 the, the, the uh, subtitle as it is now I wanted I want to uh, expand on it and so people understand that this is more than just biographies of Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa as as important as that is so the new subtitle is going to be. Um, the heroic struggle for America's heartland, because the book is not not only a biography of these two men and and their role in really the the war for the for America's heartland, but it also it, it starts well before that, uh, going back going back to the 1600s uh, and uh, and the and the French uh, and Indian Wars. Um, and now I've forgotten your question specifically again. No, and just specifically the, 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 the hunger the, for land. Yeah, and the Midwest. Yeah. The Midwest just becomes this, this, this. I hate to say battleground. How cliche, but but the entire region did, just not individual right. towns. Yeah, it was it was really. I mean, um, kind of the natural gateway beyond the Appalachians uh, to, of course, what was then and the, and the early days of the American Republic and before during colonial days. Uh, you know, largely with the exception of, of trappers and Indian traders, largely, you know, terra incognita. But the Ohio River um, was the, the natural gateway uh, over the Appalachians and into that, into the Midwest. And, um, you know, by, by the time that the American Republic was founded, uh, there already was a, a, relatively speaking, a, a problem with, with overcrowding uh, along the Atlantic seaboard. And uh, this accelerated uh, during Jefferson's administration. He wanted, he wanted to encourage um, yeoman farmers, potential yeoman farmers to move west of the Appalachians to uh, ease the potential for poverty uh, east of the, east of the uh, mountains along the seaboard. And also to expand what he called his, his, um, uh, empire of liberty uh, based on based on yeoman farmers, and the Midwest was was really uh, much more ripe for the taking than than the American South for a number of reasons. One of one being that the uh, Indian tribes in the Midwest were smaller than those and and not as well organized as those in the American South. And again, you have the, the Ohio River being the best natural uh, natural pathway. Um, across the the uh, Appalachians, and so potential settlers, as well as um, land speculators like George Washington and others, um, uh, the the Ohio country, the Midwest, was a, a natural way to go. I mentioned a few minutes ago. I asked you about being a historian and, and myth busting. What were some of the biggest myths that you discovered or dispelled? about the Indian tribes of the Midwest during this period? Well, in terms of the tribes of the Midwest, I'm not sure there's so much that there, there, there are fewer myths 
regarding the Indian tribes in the Midwest, and they were numerous and they were important uh, than there are regarding the tribes in the American West, which of course, when people think of you know Native American resistance, they, they, they tend to think of the, the Indian tribes of the, the West, you know, the Lakota, the Cheyenne, the Comanche and all that. Uh, and the tribes in the Midwest uh, are much less well-known. I mean, the Miamis, which were a major tribe, for instance, at the time, don't even no longer even exist as a tribe. The Miami, the Shawnee, Potawatomi, uh, uh, the Ojibwa. Um, not so much myth busting, but I did discover in the course of my research a, a remarkable difference between the tribes in the Midwest and those in the American West. So a couple of remarkable differences. One, the tribes in the Midwest tended to get along much better with one another than the tribes in the American West, uh, who were constantly constantly at war with one another, particularly in the in the, uh, in the Great Plains because they were fighting over buffalo, over over uh, you know hunting hunting grounds. Whereas the tribes in the Midwest were smaller, they were semi sedentary, and they they uh, generally speaking, by the time of the, the you know. The, the founding of the United States, they had uh, generally agreed upon borders and, and hunting lands, and, and they, they tended to get along pretty well, and it was easier for them to, to form alliances than it ever was for tribes uh, west of the Mississippi River to do. To do. And um, they also tended to be uh, much more accepting of, of, of whites and more readily incorporated, uh, you know, white captives into their tribes as members of, of their tribes. I mean, if you uh, were a, a white man and encountered, uh, you know, hostile Plains Indians, your chance of living very long was not good. Uh, by, by contrast, the tribe of the Midwest did uh, replenish their ranks with, uh, with not only with uh, white children, but also uh, they would adapt white men and women into their tribes. So they had, they were, had less of a, a, a sense of a racial abhorrence than the you know, Indians in the West did. And that was mutual. There was, I mean, the uh, uh, white settlers and Indians uh, when not in conflict tended to get along better in the Midwest than they did in the West. Your book focuses on Tecumseh and his brother, the prophet, why have, why have their names endured 200, almost 200 plus years after their death? Well, they created, uh, certainly not the first uh, alliance uh, in the Midwest to oppose um, white, and I use that term to refer to, you know, Americans of any stripe, um, to oppose encroachment on their lands um, there were, there was Pontiac before them, and then there was, um, uh, Little Turtle and Blue Jacket and their alliance that, uh, opposed, uh, American encroachment in the 1790s. But the alliance that they created, which began as a religious and cultural revival movement, started by the prophet, by Tecumseh's younger brother, and then turned into a political military alliance to resist American encroachment. It was the largest Native American alliance ever formed to resist 
uh, you know, the Western tide of, of Americans uh, settlement, um, you know, by way of example, uh, the largest alliance that ever was put together in the West was that of, of Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse and their Cheyenne allies that confronted Custer and the army in the Sioux War of 1876-77. And the, the, the apogee of that was a little bighorn, of course, and, and Crazy Horse and, and uh, Sitting Bull mustered at most between 2,000 and 2,500 warriors. Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa, at the height of their alliance during the War of 1812, mustered uh, approximately 6,000 warriors from uh more than a dozen tribes. And so there's, there was the largest alliance. And although going into the book, I had kind of a sense of fatalism that they were doomed to failure. Uh, I discovered uh, quite the opposite, that there were numerous occasions when they could have turned the tide and actually created an Indian buffer state and achieved at least, uh, you know, part of their objective of, of, of again, creating a space in the Midwest free of, uh, free of Americans. Um, so I think it was it was the extent of their alliance and the fact that Tecumseh himself was a very charismatic figure and um, fought um, by you know what whites considered to be their own rules of war and was quite a you know quite a humane uh, fighter. So it was, it was a number of factors: uh, the size of their alliance, the scope of it, the fact that it was it was again the largest America United States ever faced. And the basic you know, humanity of, of Tecumseh and his his charisma that has allowed them to endure more so Tecumseh than his his brother who uh, espoused a a doctrine of social cultural and and religious revival that was really is it the creeds that he professed were completely foreign to to white Americans uh, whereas Tecumseh was was and his political military aspirations were much more understandable. One of the questions I had written down before the podcast began was, was there any point in time that Native Americans could have reversed their fate and changed uh, the tide of history? You just alluded to it. So it would have been in the early 19th century in, in terms of in a temporal connection, where would it be geographically? Like how could they have done this? Temporarily, temporarily and geographically, it would have been uh, during the war of 1812 when they uh, allied themselves with the British. I mean, Tecumseh uh, who by this time was really the, he never supplanted uh, his brother as history uh, generally uh, has it. I mean, Tanks Matawa was remained an important player all through the life of their alliance um, it, as kind of the spiritual and uh, the spiritual uh, core leader of the movement. But Tecumseh certainly uh, came to the forefront as a political military leader, and he realized that um, he could not succeed without assistance from the British at a minimum with British, uh, with arms and ammunition and provisions from British Canada. But uh, when the war broke out between the United States and, and Great Britain, uh, the British and, and Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa had, had uh, interests that, uh, that um, aligned well. The British wanted, um, needed Indian allies to help uh, uh, overcome their numerical inferiority uh, in Canada. 
uh, imposing the Americans. They also looked to the Indians to help them create uh, a, a, an Indian buffer state between the United States and British Canada, which again, that, that uh, aligned well with Tecumseh's interest in, in creating a, a, uh, an Indian homeland uh, free of Americans. And so the area we're speaking of uh, at the time would have been uh, Michigan territory, which at the, uh, during the War of 1812 had a very, very small uh, white American population, you know, a couple thousand around Detroit and a few hundred scattered elsewhere uh, in the territory, as well, as well as Wisconsin territory, which was pretty much devoid of, of settlers, and uh, northernmost Ohio, and uh, really the northern third of Indiana, all that was up for grabs. And um, there were numerous instances when they came very close to achieving that goal when they when they they could have with a, a few twists of fate i think realized at a minimum their objective of of uh, michigan territory as an indian buffer state and perhaps part of indiana and ohio and at a minimum uh that would have if not if that had not existed into perpetuity at a minimum it would have set back uh american settlement west of the Mississippi by, by at least a generation or two, because he would have had this, this strong Indian presence uh, in the upper Midwest. Did the, did the Indian tribes, I mean, dating back to, you know, the start of the Seven Years' War, 1756, all the way through the Revolutionary War, War of 1812, Wars on the Frontier, did they get the sense, did they know that in some ways they were pawns as in part of a larger struggle, a worldwide struggle among European powers? Um, the tribes east of the Mississippi, most definitely, meaning the tribes in the Midwest. Uh, by the time that the Indian Wars broke out west of the Mississippi, there was no longer um, uh, foreign powers involved. The Indians were well aware of this, that they, they didn't see themselves necessarily as pawns entirely, uh, so, uh, but rather, they tried both the tribes of the Midwest and the tribes of the American South, like the Creeks and the, the, the Cherokees. They tried to play off uh, the, uh, Ameri- the, the British and French, play them off one another by, by um, sort of selling their, their lions uh, to the highest bidder. And then later, when the French were no longer in the picture, and when the United States became a reality, tried to play the British and Americans off one another. So they were well aware that they were part of a larger struggle. Um, and they, they tried to use it to their advantage whenever they could. Would it be fair to say there were so many, I must say, battles, and I guess they were battles, but opportunities for the Indians to to win the sort of buffer state at the battle of Tippecanoe here in Indiana, fallen timbers, which I believe is in Ohio. And then the battle of the Thames at which uh, Tecumseh is slain, which is part and, of and the, earlier on the defeat of uh, St. Clair in Indiana. Oh, St. Clair's oh, that, defeat. oh when he they, was right. When they wiped watered. out almost the entire United States army. Yeah. I get, so, so you have all these opportunities for the, and obviously they're warriors, um, 
but did they get it? Did they get the sense and in, in, in your writings that it come through like this is the culmination point, like this is the high tide for to use a to use a, a picket's charge uh, analogy for Indian strength in the Midwest that once this failed, then it was basically all downhill after that. Uh, yes, I think so. Uh, many, many of the Indians who uh, participated in the defeat of Arthur Sinclair uh, in 1791, which was a resounding defeat, the worst defeat the United States Army ever suffered in Indian hands. Again, uh, nearly 900 uh, of the approximately 1,200 soldiers who fought uh, the Indians in that battle in Indiana were killed. Um, but after, but then you had, you know, three years later, you had. Um, the uh, Battle of Fallen Timbers in which the United States Army inflicted a resounding defeat on the Indians and a, a number of, of, of leading chiefs who fought in that battle considered that to be the, their Waterloo and decided to try to assimilate as best they could. Um, so you had a split among the Indians. Um, interestingly, when Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa, who were mere young men, young warriors during these battles, as they came of age, um, the tribes that were closest to American settlers in Ohio and southern Indiana essentially split between those who sought accommodation and those who wanted to continue resisting. The Shawnee, the tribe to which Tenskwatawa and Tecumseh belong, is, is a perfect example. Uh, most of their followers were from outside the Shawnee tribe. Most of the Shawnees who remained in the Midwest and who had not uh, voluntarily migrated west of the Mississippi into Spanish land grant territory in modern Missouri had elected to try the white man's road, as they put it, and try to engage in, in full-time farming and, and um, uh, you know, forego their traditional uh, ways of living. And um, Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa drew most of their support from tribes that had had less direct contact with Americans, um, like the tribes of, of Michigan and, and modern-day Wisconsin and, and, and Illinois, but sort of saw the handwriting on the wall, that if they didn't unite, then, then what happened to the tribes in, in Ohio and Indiana uh, would happen to them eventually. That is to say, they're you know, they'd be militarily defeated and 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 forced to accommodate themselves. Um, so most of their most of their um, following came from elsewhere, from the Upper Midwest. And uh, yeah, with 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 their ultimate defeat, then that was really that was really it. And then the tribes of the Midwest realized after after the Battle of the Thames, in which Tecumseh killed, and then. Um, you know, a few held out and fought with the British subsequently, but by the end of the War of 1812, uh, especially when the British failed to keep their promise, and it, although they did negotiate in good faith to obtain an Indian buffer state uh, at the Treaty of Ghent, the Americans rebuffed them completely, and, and they realized that it was just a matter of time, uh, and, and, you know, there was... Uh, there was minimal conflict after that. There was Blackhawk's War in Illinois, but that was about it. Won almost single-handedly by Abraham Lincoln and his mosquito bites. As right, he, exactly. As he so eloquently said about himself. <laughs> yep. uh, 
the Tecumseh myth, the Tecumseh legend, uh, was it enhanced? Was it something that existed before his death, but then kind of, you know, reached its apotheosis after his death? Yes, to both to both questions. Interestingly, while he was still alive and still actively fighting the Americans, he was already becoming something of a legend uh, among his uh, enemies, particularly among Kentuckians and those of Indiana and Ohio, uh, who had the most to lose if he were to, to win. And that's, that's largely because of an action he took at the Battle of Fort Meigs, um, which is a... Uh, a well-preserved historic site that I recommend to, to any Indianans who happen to be uh, in the area of Toledo or, or Perrysburg, Ohio. The Fort Miggs has been restored beautifully. It's a two-acre uh, fort that's just, just fabulous and well worth a visit. The Battle of Fort Miggs was a very important engagement in the War of 1812. And Tecumseh and the British uh, fought against uh, William Henry Harrison and his uh, and uh, both his troops and uh, 900 Kentucky volunteers. And, and the Kentucky volunteers basically walked into an Indian ambush. And uh, the majority of them were either killed or captured. It comes to when, when, when several hundred of them were captured, Tecumseh was not on that part of the field of battle. But the Kentuckians fell into Indian hands and the Indians began to slaughter the Kentucky prisoners, systematically put them to death. And they, they succeeded in killing about oh, maybe four or five dozen before Tecumseh became aware of this, literally rode into the midst of, of this slaughter and put a stop to it. Was able to uh, uh, shame uh, the Indians who were perpetrating the, the crime, you know, the, the, the massacre into stopping. And uh, the Kentucky volunteers who survived were well aware of who he was. And when they were repatriated, they made it a point of, of, of relating the stories of, of Tecumseh's humanity and his intervention in saving their lives. And those stories, you know, uh, uh, hit the press in the, in the Midwest and, and across the country. And so the, the birth of, you know, the humane warrior Tecumseh was born even as he lived. Last question on this before we move on, but and maybe this is a terrific segue. How much of the fact, uh, how much was Tecumseh able to remain in American memory? Uh, how much was it helped by the fact that the second leading soldier in the Union cause was named William Tecumseh Sherman? That certainly helped. I mean, he because um, actually his birth name was Tecumseh Sherman. There was no William. It was not until he... Uh, was adopted out, um, uh, and his adoptive uh, father, I think, either I guess suggested to him. I don't, I don't know what the dynamics were, but changed his name to William Tecumseh Sherman. Um, so he was originally his, his nickname was Cump. He was Tecumseh Sherman. That was because his father, uh, like so many in the Midwest, greatly admired Tecumseh, and that that admiration continued. And there's a statue. Uh, in the, in the capital, uh, in Rotunda to Tecumseh, uh, he continues to be in, in the estimation of many uh, historians to be the, the greatest of all Indian political and military leaders, greatest Indian leader. And 
uh, oftentimes it's been at the expense of his brother, Tanks Matawa. But as I argue in the book, Tanks Matawa, beyond a doubt, was the most significant Indian spiritual leader in American history. And spiritual leadership was very important to Native Americans um, and, and uh, you know, should not be, uh, should not be uh, overlooked. And together, the two of them were, beyond a doubt, the most influential Indian brothers in American history. And, and giving Native Americans their due, you can honestly say they were among the most influential brothers, period, in American history. Uh, the, the remarkable, you know, alliance that the two of them created. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly unique in Native American history, and it's unusual in American history writ large. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast today is historian Peter Cousins. He has written several books, the latest being Tecumseh and the Prophet, the Shawnee Brothers Who Defied a Nation. He has written several books on the Civil War. I've read three of them, one on the Battle of Chattanooga, one on the Battle of Chickamauga, and one on the Battle of Stones River. And they are superb. When you decided to write about the Civil War, you focused on the West. Uh, it's fashionable to say that the war was won, quote, in the West. Uh, is that something that you uh, espouse yourself? And why did you find the Western theater so fascinating? Oh, I, mean, I guess partly because I'm from Illinois. And of course, uh, it was the, the majority of troops who fought in the Western theater were from Indiana, Illinois, and Ohio. And uh, when I began writing on the Civil War, I wanted to write uh, campaign studies. Uh, I began my first book while I was still a lieutenant in the Army. And um, I wanted to write on campaigns that had not been written into the ground. And most of those in the Eastern Theater had, more or less. And, and those in the West, at the time I was writing, uh, had, had been relatively overlooked. And so it, it seemed like a natural to start with those battles. Uh, I mean, Chickamauga was the the second bloodiest battle of the war after Gettysburg. Yet at the time I wrote my book, there was only one modern study on the battle uh, that uh, had was its that, flaws. Was that Glenn Tucker's? Yeah, and that had some severe flaws to it. And it, it was dated and based on limited research. And so... These battles, uh, you know, seemed, seemed natural to begin with these. I mean, ultimately, my last Civil War campaign study was on Jackson's Valley campaign, which I, I was probably the, the one major Eastern theater campaign that had been relatively neglected beforehand. So I, I, looked, I looked to write on, on campaigns and battles that hadn't, again, been written into the ground. Your book on, on Stones River... An underrated battle with underrated consequences. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it came at it came at a uh, a very bad time for the Union. Really, sort of at the, at the nadir of, of, of Union fortunes. I mean, this was December uh, eighteen sixty two, January eighteen sixty three. 
um, the uh, Lincoln administration was in, in danger of, of losing uh, Republican majorities in the legislatures of Indiana and, uh, and Ohio and, and uh, Illinois. Uh, you just had the Battle of Fredericksburg, yet another major defeat for the Union. And uh, Lincoln faced the prospect of the Emancipation Proclamation taking effect on the eve of, of yet another major Union defeat. I mean, it had been defeat after defeat. Uh, Antietam was at best a drawn battle. Um, and the prospect of Confederate recognition by Great Britain and, and uh, France uh, loomed large because, again, the Union had made no real progress in the East and really only minimal, pro minimal progress in the West. And then, then the Battle of Stones River occurs. Again, it was a tactical stalemate, but the Confederate Army did abandon uh, central Tennessee. And uh, so in a strategic sense, there was a Union victory, and it was a victory that came at the end of 1862. I mean, exactly coincided with the, with the um, uh, Emancipation Proclamation taking effect. And, uh, and Link, so Lincoln, I mean, he recognized how important that was. I mean, he, he sent a, a message to uh, Rosecrans a few months later, William Stark Rosecrans, the Union commander at, at Stones River, saying, you know, that, that at a, at a, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially at a time, you know, at a very critical time for us, you won us a battle force that had it been a defeat. Instead, the Union scarcely could have, uh, could have survived. So he and, and the victory at Stone River led to Republican victories in the legislatures and in the Midwest. And so it, it was very important, uh, both politically and, and militarily for the North. President Lincoln famously said when it came to the Civil War, I would like to have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. How right and, is yeah. how right is that? Um. At the time he said it, and I think early 1862, it was very important. It was a, it was a, it was a uh, critical border state. I think the most important, well, Maryland, Maryland argued because of its location vis-a-vis -vis the capital. But you know, Maryland was never really in doubt, even though it was a so-called border state. Um, it was you know occupied by Union troops early on. Kentucky, um, being you know with its proximity to the Midwest. Uh, lying right across the river from Midwestern states. Uh, if he had lost Kentucky, not only would he have lost you know, the manpower of Kentucky, but the, the Midwest would have been all the more vulnerable to Confederate invasion. Um, and it would have been, politically, it would have been a huge embarrassment, to say the least, to have Kentucky fall into Confederate hands. His home state, Lincoln's, not, right. not where he was living at the time, but his, his home state, right. one of the great what ifs in American history is the fact that Dave, Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, was born in Kentucky and his family moved south. Lincoln, president of the United States, was born in Kentucky. His family moved north to Indiana. Right. And if that had somehow switched itself, uh, you mentioned General Rosecrans a few minutes ago. I can't remember. I think there's a biography of him. It's called like the edge of glory. Right. He does seem to be a bit snake bit. Like he couldn't win that one signal victory that made him, you know, put him in the pantheon of great American generals of the war, but he was undoubtedly skilled and, and did have some successes. Yeah. He's a, he's a fascinating character. I mean, he was a brilliant man. Uh, 
very, very intelligent. Before the war, he, he uh, patented a number of uh, number of inventions uh, while he was working uh, in private business in Ohio. He um, uh, he really possessed a lot of characteristics of, of genius. One of his problems, though, is that you know I I mean not that I want to play amateur psychiatrist, but I sometimes wonder if he suffered from bipolar disorder because he he had extreme mood shifts um, and that that often you know occurred during active campaigns and affected his his thinking and nowhere was that more evident than at the Battle of Chickamauga uh, when he uh, through the first day's battle, he was running on pure adrenaline. I mean, he went several nights without sleeping. Uh, after the first day's battle, he spent the entire night pacing in his, in his headquarters cabin. Uh, I mean, he was just essentially just revved up beyond, uh, um, beyond what was healthy. And he would, when he got in this state, and it also occurred to a lesser extent at, at Stones River, uh, he would issue a flood of orders. Oftentimes he was almost incomprehensible because he was so overwrought. And then he would, he would fall into these, into these swings of, of, of despondency when he couldn't focus uh, and um, didn't see, see things clearly. And that occurred at Chickamauga when he issued a, an order that if he had been really, I mean, fully, I think fully cognizant of what was happening, uh, he never would have issued. It would have resulted in a major gap in the Union lines that the Confederates exploited and led to his defeat and eventually his sacking. So I, I think that um, in some ways he was his own worst enemy. And if he had been a little more balanced, um, I think he could have had much greater success. So I think he had some some emotional mental, you know, uh, obstacles that, that impeded his, uh, his success. That plus the fact that he fell out with Grant early on. Well, I'm going to make a statement and no one has agreed with me yet, including the uh, former governor of the state of Indiana, Mitch Daniels, Peter Carmichael, Brooke Simpson. I think I'm O for three or four. So you, I'm going to make a statement and you, you tell me I'm wrong. The clash at Shiloh is the single most important battle of the American Civil War. Hmm. I got I to think about that. Uh, Want me to make my case very yeah. quickly? Yeah, uh, I think I know where you're going with this, but go ahead. I just would say very quickly, it's, it allowed Grant to become the man he became, the general, the commander he became. He, the war, you know, was still kind of like, you know, maybe we can talk it out. Maybe we can have some sort of negotiated settlement. Grant realized after Shiloh that this is going to have to be fought out. The Confederates aren't going anywhere. It also cemented the relationship between Grant and Sherman, which clearly was the dispositive, uh, battlefield or or military relationship of the war even more than lee and jackson maybe because you know jackson dies in may of 63 at chancellorsville it's the death of albert Sidney johnston 
who was kind of the beau ideal, even more than Lee, of Confederate generals uh, heading into the war. It allowed the Union to go on the offensive in the Western theater, which leads to Corinth, which leads to getting Halleck the hell out of there so that he can't interfere with Grant as much and allows Grant to take the command uh, that leads to Vicksburg and then ultimately Chattanooga and that goes on and on. Uh, those would be the reasons that I would say. And also, if you reverse it, and if Grant had died at Shiloh and not Johnston, what would that have done to the Union cause? So that's my Cliff Notes case. I think it's a pretty good case. I think it's a pretty strong case um, for all the reasons you articulated. I, and I was think, kind of thinking of those before you articulated them, and, and I was so I was – thinking along the same lines. Uh, I think, I think I'd have to agree. I mean, I, uh, I can't certainly think of any other general that, that could have, would have fought uh, with Grant's perseverance um, in 1864 and 65. Uh, and uh, I, mean, I, th- I think that as long as the, I think as long as the union maintained its will to fight, and that is to say, as long as you know Lincoln won his second term, and the Union again maintained the will to fight, that Confederate defeat was inevitable. And also, as long so long as Europe stayed out of it. But of course, then you can say, well, if, if Grant had not achieved the successes he had, would Lincoln have been reelected? So, um, I think I'd have to agree with you. Well, tell tell of all all of our shared friends that they need to get on the bus. I so just, you're batting two. Seems... You're batting two hundred now. <laughs> I, I, I think so. It just to me, Shiloh is the battle that that is the, is the biggest fulcrum of the war. There's the war before Shiloh, and then there's the war after Shiloh, both in terms of attitude, but also in this stat I read, and it may I may not be articulating it accurately, but I had read that there were more casualties at the battle of Shiloh than in every single battle in American history up to Shiloh, that the, the, the carnage of Shiloh changed the, the attitude of both the North and the South and the South, but especially the North, like these folks will have to be conquered. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, you know, it's, there's, I'm just thinking uh, as, we're, as we're talking, with the exception of Gettysburg, I don't know of any other battle in which, at least none come to mind, in which the consequences of a Union defeat would have been so grave. I mean, if the Union had lost Shiloh and Albert Sidney Johnson had lived, although I think he's a bit of an overrated commander, but, uh, I mean, I think that would have the potential for union offenses and in, in, in Tennessee would have been, I mean, set back dramatically. Um, and the whole string of victories in the West, you know, would they have occurred? You know, hard to say. Um, uh, so I, I think your argument's pretty sound. Speaking of, thank you for that, by the way, speaking of slaughters, the, Battle of Chickamauga, which is in September of 63. It's the single most confusing battlefield I've ever been on, bar none, 
I, I need to go back just so that I can try to figure it out again. People don't realize the, the intensity of the fighting and the immense tactical victory won by the Confederacy strategic as well, but more tactical, I would argue. And I would defer to you, obviously, but what did you discover in writing your book, uh, this terrible sound, the battle of Chickamauga? Well, I mean, just if you compare it to battles in the East, I mean, if you go to Gettysburg, uh, you see the nice, the nice uh, landmarks on the ground that existed at the time, the various farms and, and, and uh, clearly defined ridges and the round tops and and uh, again landmarks that could be seen from a distance and that could would help commanders orient themselves on the ground. Chickamauga didn't have it. I mean, you, it was it was almost all forest. Uh, there were of course little hard you know hard scramble farms uh, that were uh, been carved out in various parts of the battlefield, but but the battlefield was largely forest and it was it was mostly level with the exception of, uh, of uh, Snodgrass Hill and Horseshoe Ridge, which from a distance you really couldn't see uh, that blended into the surrounding countryside. And it was hard as, hard as hell for, for troop commanders, even down to, to regimental level, to really see what was going on. I mean, they were, they were lost in deep forest and, uh, you know, no one could see one another's flanks. And, and uh, so it was, it was much more difficult to move troops at all levels from army level down than it was in, in most of the Eastern battles where again, you had, you had much more farmland, you had towns, you had, you had well-established landmarks to orient the fighting at Chickamauga. It was just a, you know, it was just a giant, uh, exception of the, the, uh, Lafayette road that cut, cut down the middle of the battlefield. You know, it was pretty much, uh, just a, a, a wild, you know, slug match, slugging match in the woods. When I when I saw the movie Braveheart the first time and saw that, I was reading your book on Chickamauga, and I went, "God, this kind of remind when the when they had these medieval clashes in the Battle of Sterling Bridge." You're like, "This is probably what Chickamauga was like, just with newer technology." And at Chickamauga, they also, you know, they had in the first day's battle, they had uh, a good degree of night fighting, which was unusual in the Civil War. And you know, imagine fighting at night with, with in darkness with the gunpowder smoke in these deep forests. I mean, it was just, uh, it was hellacious. It was, uh, it's, a, it's a confused mess. What was the casualty total for Chickamauga? Uh, I don't remember offhand. Uh, but combined, it was near 60,000, right? Between yeah. 50 and 60,000? Yeah, I mean, it was the bloodiest bloodiest two-day battle of the war and bloodiest battle of the war after after Gettysburg. Um, and I think if it, it lasted get, as long as Gettysburg, it probably would have uh, supplanted Gettysburg or perhaps would have supplanted Gettysburg in terms of casualties. Certainly in terms of the percentage of men engaged, the losses were greater. Um because neither army was that large, not as large a Chickamauga as the armies were at Gettysburg, um, and it was it was also I mean it was it was a in some ways a, it was a pointless battle. I mean the Confederates didn't follow it, follow up their victory. Uh, they really didn't gain much by it. You know they besieged Chattanooga for a while, but they never had enough troops to really make that siege stick. And uh, Grant was able to take command there and 
and fairly easily reinforce the defeated Union Army and launch his own counterattack uh, eventually at Ch- in the battles for Chattanooga. Um, I mean, Confederate Commander Braxton Bragg really, again, he, it was a wasted victory. He did not follow it up properly. And uh, uh, had it not occurred, very little would have changed, I think, uh, strategically. Let's talk about your book, The Shipwreck of Their Hopes, The Battles for Chattanooga. It's as a result of Chickamauga, the Union defeat, combined with the Union victory at Vicksburg, that Ulysses S. Grant is given command of the entire Western theater, basically the Mississippi to the Appalachians. It's been a long time since I've read your book or read about this, but is it not true that the meeting at which Grant received the command for the Western theater in the civil war happened at union station in Indianapolis, Indiana, where he met Edward Stanton in a railroad car. Right. That's correct. Yep. So the union station is one of the (laughs) sponsors of the leaders and legends podcast. I would have loved to have been there obviously to see that event. I don't even think there's a plaque for it. I wish there was somewhere, but that meeting occurred in Indianapolis Grant had a choice of keeping Rosecrans or installing George Thomas as uh, the commander of the Army of Tennessee, of the Tennessee. Of the Cumberland. Of the Cumberland. Cumberland. Right. Sherman commanded the Army of the Tennessee. Is that is that right? That's correct. Army of Cumberland. And so he decided to put Thomas in charge, who was known as the Rock of Chickamauga, for his stand while Rosecrans skedaddled up north a little bit. How did Grant reverse this terrible defeat at Chickamauga to create this really one of the most brilliant strategic victories of the Civil War at Chattanooga? Well, you know, it was really, really wasn't that difficult. I mean, partly because he faced such an incompetent opponent in Braxton Bragg. Uh, You know, Braxton Bragg was trying to besiege Chattanooga and Chattanooga, you know, uh, for those who haven't been there, it's it's surrounded um, uh, on uh, on the southern and eastern side by 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 Lookout Mountain and by Missionary Ridge by high ground essentially. And and Bragg had posted his army on the high ground, but I mean he even before Grant reinforced the Army of the Cumberland, Grant came to. Chickamauga, the I'm Chattanooga, excuse me, the Army of the Cumberland, which had been the army defeated at Chickamauga, was the only Union force there. And even at that point, I mean, Bragg, who's trying to bottle up Chattanooga, did not have numerical superiority. And, you know, that's, I mean, you don't don't usually try to besiege an opponent if you don't have, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty good numerical superiority. And also the ability to close off all routes of resupply and uh, and reinforcements and Grant, and Bragg had none of that and so Grant it was really not a difficult matter for Grant to reopen a supply line into Chattanooga to obtain reinforcements from the Army of the Potomac uh, troops uh, from Sherman's Army of the Tennessee including Sherman himself uh, I mean the Confederates are just sitting up in this high ground the poor Confederate soldiers watching these Union troops pour into Chattanooga during the course of the autumn of 1863. And uh, by the time Grant staged his breakout 
of, of Chattanooga's assaults on on uh, Lookout Mountain and Missionary Ridge. I mean, he 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 greatly outnumbered Bragg, and uh, Bragg's lines were so attenuated that it really was not particularly difficult victory to achieve. Who was the more excruciatingly insufferable general in person? Confederate Braxton Bragg or Union General George McClellan? Oh boy, geez, that's that's a tough one. <laughs> I, 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 I could use a couple of days prep or something like that. Um, I think McClellan was a much was much more insufferable in the sense that um, I mean, if you're looking at it from the perspective of uh, you know, would he follow the commander and the general, the commander in chief's uh, directives? Uh, I mean, McClellan was constantly second guessing Lincoln and 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 uh, bad mouthing him. Bragg was utterly loyal to Jefferson Davis. In fact. Mm-hmm. If it hadn't been for Davis, Bragg would not have retained his command as long as he did. Bragg uh, did have a better strategic sense than McClellan did. Um, he, but he, McClellan got along better with his subordinate commanders than did Bragg. But Bragg got along better with much better with the commander in chief. Uh, Bragg had a very acerbic personality and uh, tended to scapegoat. Uh, for his defeats, McClellan didn't really. McClellan scapegoated up. He didn't. He did not <laughs> scapegoat down the way Bragg did. Uh, so you know, if you were a subordinate general, you'd much rather serve under McClellan than under Bragg. So in terms of insufferability, it depended on whether you were the the president or a subordinate commander. I guess your other book about that deals with Civil War history is called. Shenandoah, 1862, Stonewall Jackson's Valley Campaign. Uh, It's universally regarded, unless you want to uh, disabuse me of this statement, as one of the most brilliant campaigns, not only in the Civil War, but in in modern global warfare. Is that a reasonable conclusion? And is that that's kind of where Jackson became his own sense of mythical figure? It's a little overstated, uh, even in the Civil War context. Um, Jackson, uh, where he 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 succeeded uh, in part because there was uh, a lack of unified Union command in the Shenandoah Valley, and you know he Jackson had the benefit of interior lines and being able to travel up and down the Shenandoah Valley rapidly. I mean his his force was composed almost exclusively of men who grew up in the Shenandoah Valley or in its environs, knew the country intimately, uh, as did Jackson, because of course he taught at VMI for a number of years. Um, so he had that advantage of interior lines. You had, he opposed, uh, was opposed by three union forces uh, at, at, um, uh, at the height of the campaign, none of which could communicate directly with one another. And, uh, all, and all three of which were micromanaged by Abraham Lincoln and Edwin Stanton from Washington, D.C. Um, so whereas, you know, Lee, uh, first Joseph Johnston, and then after his wounding Robert E. Lee, uh, accorded Jackson pretty much a free hand to do what he, he thought best to defend the valley. So he had, he had those advantages. Um, but that doesn't diminish the fact that he, 
he he knew where to strike when he understood the union vulnerabilities and and um, uh, made the best of them. He wasn't wasn't a particularly good uh, tactical commander once the battle was once battle was was joined. Uh, he was he he made a number of mistakes in the Valley Campaign, uh, but <clears throat> he was he was good enough to prevail. And I think where again where he succeeded was in his use of interior lines to uh, keep the, the three union forces that he was opposing, uh, you know, off guard, strike them uh, before they could unite. And and he understood the union vulnerability um, very well. So it, it was it was a, it was a, a model campaign in terms of the use of interior lines and making the best of a. a um, an inferior force. Although you have to remember too that, again, the, the union forces that he opposed were all fairly, fairly widely separated, and none of the union forces that he opposed at any given time, you know, really exceeded his force. So he was able to bring uh, either parity or numerical superiority against the union forces that he opposed at any given time. Um, I mean, that's to his credit, obviously, and again, shows that he understood. Uh, the union vulnerabilities. So, uh, you know, I don't want to diminish his, his accomplishments in the Valley, but people also need to, to realize that there was lack of un, a unified union command. There was micromanaging by, by Lincoln and Stanton uh, that really worked uh, contrary to the best interests of the of, you know, union victory in the Shenandoah Valley. Is it fair to say that he was the first really until, until Lee took over he was the confederate general that scared the north the most oh yeah yeah um yeah definitely um i mean his victories were coming and his victories in the valley which were you know individually these were small battles uh but they came at a time when when the uh the confederacy had no other battles victories to to uh brag about and also the union wasn't accomplishing much so they took on a an importance that uh, uh they otherwise might not have and and he became you know a subject of of, of, of folklore even even while he was still fighting these battles in the, in the shenandoah and then uh, at one point you know he he threatened uh he kind of sort of fainted down the valley, which means in the valley parlance, going north in the valley, he 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 fainted as if he were going to uh, do an end run uh, on Washington D.C. And of course, that created uh, uh, quite a bit of concern in the Lincoln administration. So he he uh, he really made his presence felt uh, well beyond the Shenandoah Valley, and, and his presence in the valley too caused caused. Uh, a uh, significant number of troops to be detached from George McClellan and the Army of the Potomac when they were about to, when McClellan was about to finally stage his big march against uh, against the Confederates around Richmond. So it, it really had it really had an outsized impact. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast with historian Peter Cousins. The History Book Club called your five volume series. Eyewitness to the Indian Wars, quote, the definitive resource on the military struggle for the American West. That's a terrific honor. What made you take that task on? And I want to uh, append very quickly and say, 
Ulysses S. Grant has received a significant amount of revision, benevolent revisionism, and you don't think that should apply to his contact, his uh, his um, conduct when it comes to uh, the Native Americans in the American West. Um, explain that, if you would. Right. Well, first, real quickly, Eyewitnesses of the Indian Wars is a five-volume work in, uh, in which I, I I wanted to do for the Indian Wars what was done for the Civil War in the series Battles and Leaders of the Civil War, which is telling the struggles through um, accounts by participants, both both the Army, civilian, I should say not both, but Army, civilian, and and American Indian. And uh, those books actually led me to write my book, The Earth is Weeping, the epic history of the uh, Indian Wars for the American West, which was a, a bestseller. It sold over, uh, um, I think, close to 150,000 copies worldwide. It's, uh, it's been recognized now as the definitive work on the Indian Wars in the West. And so that way it was that sort of launched me into, into that book. Um, with respect to Grant and, and American Indians, he, it's, it's a mixed bag. I mean, he, when he was elected president, he had excellent intentions. He wanted to um, minimize conflict with the uh, tribes in the West, particularly the Plains Indians, um, through uh, a more humane, more humane policies, which in large part, uh, consisted of cleaning up the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which was corrupt as hell, and which was uh, through shenanigans and withholding uh, um, uh, provisions and other um, assistance to, to Indians that was granted by treaty, uh, contributed to the conflicts in the West. He, he replaced corrupt Indian agents with uh, Indian agents were drawn from religious communities, uh, and, and he really did, in his heart, want to minimize conflict with the tribes in the West. However, and this was in 1869, right after he after he was elected president. By 1876, uh, I'm sorry, by 1874, uh, as his second term was was kind of winding into his last two years. Uh, circumstances had changed greatly. The United States was in the midst of a, of a depression um, and gold was discovered in the Black Hills uh, by an expe- expedition led by George Armstrong Custer. There was a run, a, a gold rush into the Black Hills, which was land that was claimed by the Lakota uh, who had wrested it from the Crow Indians. Um, and, but it was clearly in the hands of the Lakota, as I say, the Sioux Indians. And the, you know, the, you had, again, the gold rush that led to the foundation of Deadwood and these other communities in the, in the Black Hills. And, and Grant tried for about a year and a half to, to uh, expel miners from the Black Hills. But, you know, with the country in, in a depression and gold in the Black Hills, there was no way he was gonna succeed in doing that. And he, he tried to buy the Black Hills from the Lakota. Uh, they wouldn't sell at the price that uh, the government was willing to pay, which was a pittance of what the Black Hills was worth. And the Lakotas knew that. 
And so he was kind of, he was faced with a situation that either he could honor the treaties that he had been negotiated with the Lakota that granted the Black Hills to the Lakota into perpetuity, or since he could not buy them, he had to find a way to to obtain them somehow uh, or risk uh, Republicans losing the next election by their, by their failure to do so. And so he, uh, and I, and people can find the article that I wrote online for Smithsonian Magazine in, uh, a number of years ago in which I talked about grants uh, secretly provoking uh, a war with the Lakota and the, their Cheyenne allies uh, that would, that would lead, if the Lakota were defeated, lead to their losing the Black Hills and uh, that uh, it was it was really a nefarious act on the part of Grant, you know, um, provoking provoking a war with try with Lakota who were essentially at wanted nothing but more than to be left alone on their on their lands. And uh, interestingly, Grant biographers, you know, the slew of Grant biographers in recent years have uniformly. Uh, either completely overlooked that episode in Grant's role in provoking the Great Sioux War that led, among other things, to the Little Bighorn, and then ultimately to the Lakota losing the Black Hills, have either completely overlooked that conflict, ignored it, or, or downplayed Grant's role in it uh, dramatically, and instead just focused on his so-called you know, humanitarian peace policy, which was well-intended and for which he deserves commendation uh, early in his first term, but doesn't excuse his actions in, in again, provoking a war with, a, with otherwise peaceable Lakota uh, to, to seize the Black Hills. Why do you think they, they do? I mean, you know, we, we try to be honest as historians and, and scholars. I mean, do you think that they're so, and I'm not asking you necessarily to ascribe uh, some sort of malevolent motive to what they were trying to do but do you think in their in their zeal to say grant was not a drunk he was a damn good general and he wasn't corrupt personally although his administration had issues it was better than it's being portrayed by historians immediately afterward so we're just not going to write about this you know i don't i don't know what to what, what to ascribe it to entirely um Either you know you, you can't say it's a it's a an ignorance of that. Uh, you could I think you could say that honestly to an extent before my book The Earth Is Weeping and before my article in Smithsonian, because this this um, grant planned out this uh, planned this strategy for securing the Black Hills. He did it very secretively. He called in like-minded generals like Phil Sheridan and George Crook and. Um, couple of, of uh, unscrupulous cabinet members to a secret meeting in Washington to discuss the strategy for this. He did not even involve William T. Sherman, who was a commanding general in the West in, in this conference. He kept Sherman ignorant of this because I think he realized that Sherman, uh, for all his faults, was, was, not, was a very honorable man. It would not have sanctioned the, the, the strategy that Grant was putting together. And so, so Sherman was kept in the dark. And, and this, uh, this, conspira- this conspiracy, for lack of a better word, uh, didn't make it into the press, except there were, there were a few 
hints at it and can only be found uh, indirectly in three or four uh, confidential messages, which are in the National Archives and Library of Congresses and in the, the posthumously published journals of one of uh, the subordinates of, of, uh, uh, of one of the generals who's involved in this. It was, so it was easy to cover it up. Grant lied about it in testimony to Congress, subsequent uh, to the Little Bighorn. So in the past, it was easy to overlook, but you know, in recent years, it, it's come to light. And I, you know, I don't, I don't know to what you can attribute to that. Maybe it's just a consideration that, well, you know, in the larger scheme of things, in Grant's presidency, uh, the fact that he um, uh, committed the most egregious uh, betrayal of the Indians in the West isn't that big a deal. Or um, and when you're talking biographers, you're talking Ron Chernow. I mean, these are heavyweight heavyweight folks yeah uh or it just uh, or whether it's just it's desire to 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 leave that path untrodden because it leads really leads to some some very um um uncommendable characteristics you know and and, and actions on grant's part i don't know i don't know it's it's unfortunate because i have a high opinion of grant overall i think he i mean he he faced a real conundrum you know he do I, do I leave the Black Hills in the hands of the, the Lakota, which I really can't do because it, it, by, by 1875, it had become impossible to expel all these miners from, the, from Deadwood and other cities, the other towns in the Black Hills. And you, he was in an economic depression. Uh, I mean, he, he couldn't do it. Uh, he, was, he was really up against, uh, up against the wall in this. So, you know, he, I, I, I don't like what he did, but I... It's understandable, it is, but it shouldn't be ignored. So I, I commend my article in the Smithsonian Magazine to folks who really want to understand the nuts, the nuts and bolts of what Grant did. And, and Peter Cousins' article in the Smithsonian is free. I read it yeah, it's uh, not free that online. long ago. It's free online. You should definitely read it if you're interested in that uh, era of history. And, and Grant specifically, I go, although I guess we should not be surprised that he conspired with Philip Sheridan to, no, no, no. Uh, his uh, Indian uh, solve his Indian quote unquote problems. We have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. It's these are tough ones for historians, and I apologize in advance. But if you're ready, I'll go ahead. Okay, shoot. What was your first job? My first job uh, in high school. I worked as a, and this maybe reflects, uh, is one of the reasons for my love, or it's because of my love of books. Uh, I worked as a page at the uh, local library in Wheaton, Illinois, um, shelving books and helping check out books. And it was also, it was also a wonderful job because I was the only guy working in the job and I <laughs> got a lot of great dates out of it. Uh, but that was my first job. <laughs> what was your first concert? My first concert was, um, this was a strange one. This was uh, a strange juxtaposition. It was 19, my senior year in high school. I took my girlfriend to see Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons uh, at the Auditorium Theater in Chicago. And you'll never, you would never guess in a, a thousand years throwing it back at you who the lead, the, the lead in, what do you call it, the warm-up opening, band was? The opening act? Opening act. Um, you, I mean, Ted Nugent. Patty Smith. From Patty, Sm- Patty Smith was the lead in to Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons. 
the other Patty Smith. The, the, yeah, and I think she was so. I think she was sober that night too. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I was thinking of Patty Smythe from Scandal. no Patty Smith, the Patty Smith from the seventies. Yeah. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? The Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov is my favorite novel. Uh, I'm a big fan of Russian literature in general, and particularly of that book. It, it's uh, I've read it three times. It's considered by by many to be the one of, if not the finest work of 20th century Russian literature. I think it's the greatest work of 20th century literature. Uh, it's uh, it's it's a brilliant novel that it was written during the stern Stalinist Russia, published posthumously. Because uh, Bulgakov would have been stood up against the wall and shot if he tried to, or anybody who tried to publish it during Stalinist era. It's a combination of satiric, a satirical look at Stalinist society juxtaposed with the uh, with Pontius Pilate and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and which sounds you know bizarre and, and impossible uh, on the surface, but is it's an incredibly moving book and the only novel I ever actually cried. When I finished reading it, it was so moving. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Hmm. Any event in history. Uh, any single event in history. Uh, I guess the crucifixion of Christ. Number five, if you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? Mm. Two hours off the record. Uh, nothing's, no one's coming clearly to mind right now and I, I don't want to expose my political leanings uh no we've had people say barack obama george w bush bill clinton okay i'm gonna i'm gonna say it then barack obama <laughs> i think i think he is the most often selected uh, unless you're going for the raquel welch type right it's barack obama well yeah then you know whether it be an interview or just to look at somebody that's that's a totally different <laughs> <laughs> Kettlefish. <laughs> you have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been renowned best-selling historian peter cousins peter thank you so much for your time and for your scholarship and your contribution not only to my library but to my understanding of american history thank you so much for having me i really enjoyed it thank you very much for listening to leaders and legends brought to you by veteran strategies incorporated if you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.